In fact, my first memory of rum was my dad coming back from these initial trips in 93, and he would open his leather suitcase, and he had these sample bottles of rums, um, and I had never heard the word rum. You know, you hear the word whiskey and vodka and aguardiente, which is what Colombians drink, very early on, inevitably, when you grow up in Colombia. But rum was a new one for me, and I remember asking my dad, what is rum? Welcome to the Lush Life Podcast. I'm your drinking companion, Susan Schwartz, and I bring you the how-to guide for living life one cocktail at a time. Thanks to my mother's love of martinis, the first words I spoke were shaken, not stirred, and I've been obsessed by cocktails ever since. Together, we'll learn from bartenders, brand ambassadors, distillers, and others why certain drinks are popular in certain cultures, how to make the perfect old-fashioned, when to shake and when to stir, and so much more. Hear that sound? It's time to cozy up to the bar and let the fun begin. Our guest today has succeeded in bottling the wonder that is Colombia's Caribbean coast. From a family not afraid to take chances, Miguel Riascos de Castro was destined to create Lechecera Rum. It was in his blood. I was uh, born in Colombia. I was born in Bogotá to uh, a mother from Barranquilla who's got Dutch heritage um, from Curaçao, so all very Caribbean, and a father from... Uh, Santa Marta, which is another small Caribbean city um, in the Colombian Caribbean. So right next to the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta, which is actually the highest uh, mountain on any coast uh, coastline in the world. So it's like 6,000 meters high, super lush, biodiverse. And I think it is kind of like a Caribbean icon. So my family on both sides was always very much Caribbean, um, but I was born in Bogotá. And if you've ever been to Colombia, there's kind of a divide. Even though we're all Colombians, there's a bit of a cultural divide between people from the Caribbean and people from the interior, from the mountains, from the Andes. So even though um, I don't speak with a Caribbean accent when I speak in, 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 when I speak in Spanish, I definitely do feel part of the Caribbean through heritage and my background and the whole thing. And strangely enough, the people from Bogotá don't really see me as one of their own either. Uh, which is nice. Hot-blooded I, versus cold-blooded? Ish. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of that type of thing. You know, the people in the Caribbean, uh, they're super laid back. They're all about music, flavors, colors, etc. As you would expect people from any Caribbean nation to be. Uh, people from Bogota are, of course, still very interesting, but they're a lot more reserved, a lot more cold-blooded in that sense, yes. And so, you, but you grew up all around I, rum. I grew up in Bogota. I grew up all around rum, and, and more than actually growing up around rum, I grew up um, just seeing how a rum business was put together. Uh, or, you know, you, you look at these Caribbean rum hubs, and you look at the big... Caribbean rum names and they've been going on for hundreds of years and 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 it's uh, you know almost impossible to imagine how they came into fruition whereas um 
our story in Colombia is is actually you know a story of a small family putting together a rum company from scratch, um, and that was actually how I grew up. I, I you know I'm 31 years old now. Um, I was born in 1986, and uh, prior to 1993, our family uh, was in another business. We weren't in the rum business, so. Um, I got to see how my father and grandfather put the first box uh, there in place and, uh, and, and, and how it evolved from there. What were they doing beforehand? So, uh, as many Caribbean families do, they were in uh, agriculture, especially bananas, uh, at a time when Colombia and, and was, you know, a banana republic, one of many. Uh, and Colombia has, of course, you know, bloomed, uh, blossomed into this amazing country with a booming economy and uh, and many interesting things going for it. But back in the day, and, and this is no surprise to absolutely anybody, Colombia was going through tough times economically and politically, socially as well. Um, so for several generations uh, prior to my, my own, I would say my family was, was in bananas in agriculture and this whole thing in the Colombian Caribbean. But... Um, you know, Colombia got to a point where things were just so complicated, so turbulent, so uncertain in the countryside that uh, um, my grandfather and father, uh, you know, felt that perhaps the future of the family was in something different, something a bit more urban. Uh, we've always, as a family, uh, been very Caribbean, very rooted in the Colombian Caribbean, uh, which is something we appreciate and value. Uh, so we wanted something that was still Caribbean in nature uh, and uh, and in essence and uh, and well rum was not you know the the obvious answer it was an accident it was a result of you know a few reflections and travels and the rest of it but uh, that's what we ended up with was rum really was it the drink of choice in the Caribbean part of Colombia. Then? I think I think drink is the drink of choice in the Caribbean part of Colombia, but <laughs> rum plays a huge part in that. Uh, um, the truth is, rum is the you know quintessential Caribbean drink, mm -hmm. uh, and every single I mean, if you look at any spirits category, I would say rum is perhaps the most diverse. You have you know so many different heritages. If that's a word you can see in the plural uh, throughout the Caribbean. Um, so many different styles, so many different histories, so many different peoples uh, that, you know, it's it's a very diverse thing. You have many, many variables, whether it's the cane, the actual uh, fermentation process, the actual distillation, the actual aging, and you will end up with a very different product mm -hmm. wherever you produce it. Um, we felt that from the Colombian Caribbean, we could add to that diversity um, in our own way by making rum. But it was not an obvious transition, you know, just going yeah. from agriculture to uh, to rum. Or bananas um, to rum. I mean, maybe no. if you had been in, you know, sugar cane. Exactly. That makes sense. Exactly. Uh -huh. So the way that that happened and, and, and you know, the, the actual family events that uh, at the time was was somewhat tragic and, and, and sad. And, and it was just one more story out of many sad stories um, happening in Colombia at that time was the kidnapping of my grandfather, my father's father. And he was actually held at the Sierra Nevada, this high mountain range I told you about um, by the city of Santa Marta in the Caribbean. Um, and he was held there for a few months. Now, it has a happy ending. We got him back and he was uh, 
plump and happy and pink and fat and 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 he had this long beard obviously because he didn't shave for that long and uh you, you we asked him hey how was it he said well i miss you all but uh those guerrilleras can sure dance um so he was that type of caribbean character uh but you know joking aside um it was a really trying time for the family and we just said hey this is you know there's no light at the end of the tunnel this is really hard right now let's just consider you know transitioning into something a bit safer and and that was that um and if you consider that political phenomenon of kidnappings and and drug trade and the whole thing it actually stems from the uh end of the cold war you know in 1989 you have the collapse of the berlin wall the iron curtain the ussr um and politically you know that's rather geopolitically that implied a lot of change uh and in colombia and in the region specifically it meant that uh all the socialist movements all the insurgents socialist insurgents throughout latin america of which colombia had many um were no longer receiving that direct funding from the soviets which meant they had to you know figure it out right, somehow yeah. and and unfortunately that meant kidnapping for extortion and this and that so that happens um and and um and my grandfather you know despite this very very trying experience um you know he he actually managed to connect the dots and he said well you know what if indirectly the root cause of my kidnapping is this shift in in politics um then perhaps uh we should look to cuba for a future in the family um cuba following 1989 and the fall of the the berlin wall went into a very very deep recession a period called the periodo especial the special period and you know it was just this term coined by fidel castro in one of his um eight hour long speeches um you know inviting the people to be austere and hard times are coming basically a way of telling them we are no longer getting this check from uh the USSR uh this monthly check uh and we're going to have to figure it out on on our own and what that ultimately meant it was they were no longer in a position to refuse um foreign companies from participating in Cuban opportunities um and in fact they were somewhat dependent on those So my father um following my grandfather's uh, advice by the way my grandfather is Alfredo Riascos and my father is Miguel Riascos okay. as am I junior. Um so following my 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 grandfather's advice uh his cue my father went to Cuba but Rome was not part of the picture it was this let's go to Cuba um there's a Colombian saying el, el que pega primero pega dos veces he who hits first hits twice. Uh, so he wanted to be first, uh, the first to hit. Um, went to Cuba. Um, we approached them with Colombian coffee. You know, Colombians produce beautiful, great coffee. Cubans um, know how to make great coffee. They they don't grow great coffee, but they've got a very particular way of making coffee. And and if you look at what has recently happened with with coffee today, it's it's all on the back of. Um, more than origin which is always important it's all the barista this italian method of uh, of preparing coffee so you know order an espresso an americano a macchiato but uh the cubans uh, well 
if the Italians don't grow coffee, they just know how to prepare it. Well, the Cubans have that same talent, that same charm, specific to coffee. But, you know, it was a very limited opportunity, you know, interesting on paper, but not very interesting on numbers. Because at that same time in America, yeah. it was all about Juan Valdez. Exactly. I mean, everyone coffee. thinks coffee comes from Colombia, at least in the United States at, at that at time. time. And that was time. early 80s. I remember yeah. that as a child, Juan Valdez. To me, that was the first thing I, you know, you go to Colombia, I got to have the coffee. It's That's exactly uh, right. And, and Colombian coffee was... Was and still is, you know. Yeah. I, I stand by the fact that Colombian coffee is the best in the world. Right. But now, uh, I think that uh, you know, coffee has diversified enormously in origins. And you've got coffees from Africa, Ethiopia. You've got co- coffees from uh, Southeast Asia and Vietnam, and and, and it's become time. a lot more diverse. At that uh, time, it was yeah. dominated by Colombia yeah. and Colombian imagery. So that was an idea that didn't fly. Um, we approached them. Uh, for tobacco, you know, just uh, hand-rolled tobaccos like a cigar. That's a very Cuban thing. And we said, well, let's see if we can do something here. Well, that was basically, you know, impossible. Left out of the room, probably. No, completely. <laughs> these guys, I mean, it's so close to their chest oh, yeah. that they really just don't want to share that uh-huh. with anybody. And then, um, you know, very much confused and wondering what to do. My father read, um, or he found out through the Colombian ambassador about a deal recently signed by this uh, French company called Pernod Ricard uh, that nobody knows about. Um, at the time, the largest, uh, the second largest, you know, spirits company in the world with a Cuban company called Cubarron. Uh, which is a dependency. It's a company run by the Cuban Ministry of Food, and it's one of two state-run companies making rum in Cuba. Mm-hmm. So communist country, everything's super centralized. Um, you've got a bunch of ministries. They all, in a way, take care of uh, different state-run companies. And you have this one managing Cubarron and the and another one, um, which uh, was was yet to be approached by a foreign company. Um, but um, to finish that story, Pernod Ricard at the time, and this was 1983, approached Cuarón, who held this brand, Havana Club, and uh, from there uh, they put together a joint venture, Havana Club International. And uh, and what it was was uh, the French offered their you know distribution, their access to markets as a multinational, the whole thing, and the Cubans could continue doing what they did best, which was. Uh, to make the rum, make good rum. So my father saw an opportunity there and he approached the other company making rum in Cuba, which was Tecnosucar. Tecnosucar was a rum making company for, or the company making rum for the Cuban Ministry of Sugar, which just the fact that they have a Ministry of Sugar uh, shows you how important that industry actually is for them. And to make a very long story uh, short, they actually, uh, my father actually traveled to Cuba about 27 times in one year, which is something I can only imagine my mom being thrilled about. Uh, and, and he managed to sign a technological exchange agreement. So obviously the Cubans didn't want to um, infringe on whatever they had agreed with the French. They wanted to respect that agreement. So we put together different agreements, which is just all about know-how and technological exchange. 
We mentioned how at the time Colombia was, you know, the mecca for coffee in the world. Uh, but if you look at rum, it was all Cuban. Now we have rum from all over the Caribbean. I mentioned it being the most diverse mm -hmm. uh, category out of all spirits. Um, but at the time, it was almost exclusive to Cuba and Cuban imagery. Um, it was all about Cuban tobacco, Cuban rum, that type of thing. Um, so getting that know-how, you know, firsthand was a very, very important thing for the family. I love how we brought competition yeah. to a communist country. It's, it's interesting, though. And, and, and I, I believe that through deals like these, the Cubans have seen kind of like the lights and that, you know, having a club has, in a way, branded the country and it's made it into an accessible uh, nation uh, to visit and... and, and And, and I think they, they haven't, that hasn't gone over their heads. They've gotten that, so, so, which is always interesting. Uh, obviously, I think that island, you know, inevitably will open up and it has a very bright and beautiful future ahead. If you've ever had the chance to go, if not, go. It's amazing. Um, so that was it. Technological exchange agreements. The deal uh, was done. The deal was done. It was signed by my father and Fidel Castro with, uh, you know, the Colombian ambassador to Cuba at the time, Ricardo Santa Maria. And what it was, was, um, you know, a deal whereby we would invest in a very small facility, a very modest facility in the Colombian Caribbean in the city of Barranquilla. Um, and the Cubans would basically send us their best and brightest Cuban master blenders, sugar engineers, Um, rum makers um, to teach us how to make rum, how to improve uh, rum, how to work on rum, how, how to basically put together a rum company. And that's 1993, um, 1994 actually, is when we actually seeded the first barrel with the Cubans in Barranquilla. Uh, so you, like, you were little. I was little. Uh -huh. I was little. In fact, my first memory of rum was my dad coming back from these initial trips in 93. And he would open his leather suitcase and he had these sample bottles of rums. Um, and I had never heard the word rum. You know, you hear the word whiskey and vodka and aguardiente, which is what Colombians drink very early on, inevitably when you grow up in Colombia. But rum was a new one for me. And I remember asking my dad, what is rum? Um, and uh, he would just come back from these trips and very proudly. And my dad was a really young guy then, you know. Um, he was not much older to what I am now and he would pull out what looked like these uh, little square glass bottles think uh, vintage milk bottles filled with rum with handwritten labels really neat um, and that's kind of like my first interaction with the idea of rum and from there it actually became a project and, and uh, then a lab and then you know uh, an aging facility in a rum factory so So that was a general context. Uh, I, I grew up in, um, you know, following 94 and this whole technological exchange. I mean, was it a fait accompli that you would be in this industry when you were studying business? Not, not necessarily. It's, uh, it's the, 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 the fact is that, you know, I've always admired and looked up to my father as I think, you know, any young uh, kid does. Um, And very much in, in line with, uh, with Latin form, um, it's almost expected that you might, uh, you know, carry the torch further, you know, just 
pick up uh, where your father left off and do the whole thing. Well, but it's, it's hard not to, especially with the burden of history that you have. Yeah. I mean, it's a big history. Yeah, but, you know, it could have been anything else. Right. And, and, and I come from a loving home. I, I could have I been a journalist. I could have done anything else. Not, not that I was a good student. We'll get that to that later. But we'll get into that later. But, uh, but it was what it was. It's... Uh, you know, it was it was a beautiful thing to be a part of. I think it's it's a great uh, context to grow up in. You know, seeing uh, this rum company become reality in the Colombian Caribbean and and, and growing up, uh, you know, um, and seeing both countries that you've been involved yeah. with change so much in Enormously. just your short lifetime. Enormously, yeah, absolutely. And we never had the expectations for the company that we had today. The actual business plan was. We make the investment. The Cubans give us all their technology and know-how. Uh, we, uh, in exchange, you know, give them a small royalty uh, on sales. And what the Cubans, in addition to that royalty, got out of it was basically an opportunity to access the U.S. the U.S. market, which is the only market they couldn't access through Perno even uh, due to the trade embargo. So have some sort of access, some sort of insights. Uh, into so it wasn't the, just the Colombia you were selling them. No. It was the kind of rest of the world. Yeah, it. that was the business plan uh, on paper. And of course, you know, paper holds everything. You can plan a lot of things, but in reality, things, you know, just work out differently. Um, so that was one idea. The other idea was we wanted to make Cuban-style rum, Cuban recipe rum. Um, but Cuba, you know, rum, as he said, is a result of diversity. It's a result of variety. And Cuba did not have a lot of diversity and variety within. You know, all rum was produced under exactly the same homogeneous centralized recipe run by the Cuban government. Um, so there was not a lot of diversity there. The other huge thing about rum is rum is the result of history. And, and it's, it's, you know, if the Caribbean is a melting pot, rum is the inevitable result of that. Uh, you've got um, distillation that was initially... Uh, at the Arabian technology, uh, you have um, aging in oak barrels, which at the time, you know, following 19, 1492 was the only way of transporting liquid and water in, 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 uh, in ships. You've got uh, this really fertile land, tropical land, uh, um, that, and you have these seeds from east, the East Indies, you know, which is sugarcane, which is where sugarcane is from. And then you've noticed that these seeds actually uh, blossom amazingly well. They bloom amazingly well in uh, the lush Caribbean. Um, and then you've got this European demand for sugar, which was very, very expensive and a luxury at the time. And you put all these things together. Uh, you put, uh, you know, slave labor, very from Africa, which is a very sad part of this as well. Um, and, and what you end up coming up with was just an accident, a fluke, rum, you know, uh, sugar ferments, uh, a still distills, a barrel ages this, and it ends up tasting amazingly well and having a great effect on people and, and, and the whole thing. So, so the outcome was a very, I guess, idiosyncratic rum that you were creating. Totally. Well, well, the thing is, and that's how every single country, every nation ended up having kind of like their own rum because they all had their own different elements coming into play and their own rum thing. But when you go back to Cuba, the, you know, you, you, you of course had so much culture and history. I wouldn't dare say that the Cubans lack any culture at all. Uh, it's a great place. But in terms of the way the industry was managed, it was very, very homogeneous. 
Um, and there's another very key thing in, in, in making quality Hispanic style rum. And that is one variety, but two, the, the, the freshly dumped ex-bourbon American white oak cask. If you've got a trade embargo, obviously you have no access to these freshly dumped casks. So here we had these bright minds from Cuba who grew up cutting sugar cane for the Cuban, Cuban revolution, eventually matured as master blenders in, in this huge rum and sugar hierarchy in Cuba. Making rum with us in Barranquilla in a facility that is tiny. It, uh, it uh, encourages innovation. It's got a cutting edge lab. We've, you know, Colombia has always been a free market in a Latin American context, despite whatever history. We've always been a very open market. We've got access to uh, freshly dumped barrels, the best raw materials, and ultimately just an invitation from us to innovate. So rather than just learning how to make rum their way, we ended up, you know, developing a completely new and unique way of making rum, which is what we still do today. So that beginning to the whole thing, that technological exchange agreement, it had an initial term of 10 years. It went from 93 to 2003. After that, we considered we were well above the learning curve. Uh, our Cuban master blenders, of which, um, you know, they, 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 they were with us for a while. And, and, and one of them, which is a Cuban-Japanese gentleman you might have read about, uh, he's still with us today. Um, but these guys were already married and Colombians and obviously doing very well for themselves from Colombia, which they couldn't really do in Cuba. Um, so we decided to cut ties with the Cuban government and, and follow our own way. And uh, uh, eventually we got to where we are today. Is that where the seeds of La Chisera Yes, that is began? Kind of, yes. And, and do you consider La Chisera is, um, as an actual liquid, it's a blend of rums aged 12 to 21. So we had to go through those initial motions of seeding uh, fresh distillates and making a three-year-old rum and then making a six-year-old rum and then until eventually just getting into 12-year-old rum territory. But even then, the category was not as interesting as it is today. Um, rum or spirits were not as interesting as, as, as they are today because uh, premiumization had not quite happened as a mm. thing, you know. Uh, now it's all about a brand. It's about an experience. It's, a, it's, it's, it's so much richer as an experience. You know, spirits sell stories. But back then it was still very functional in what spirits proposed. So um, eventually, you know, I grew up, my sister Laura grew up. Uh, we ended up fall falling in love with the idea of, of making rum. And then something amazing happened. Actually, a few things. First is that we actually had the liquid in the barrels and it had the time and more importantly it had the quality uh the second was the market context all of a sudden you had this trend of premiumization and people willing to pay a lot more for beautiful spirits you had hendrix doing great things for the gin category you had several tequila brands kind of like bringing that category up um you had so many really cool brands that play internationally that we really just said, you know, business to business behind the scenes is cool, but let's do something we can show. Let's, let's put something together that we are tremendously proud of because we did feel we had a story to tell. We did feel a certain responsibility as a family to claim that Colombian origin for a quality product. Um, and you were studying business yes. at the right time for this as well when this it's marketing. What, exactly. And 
So I, that. I, I was studying business, uh, and to be perfectly honest, uh, I studied business because I felt it was just a um, fairly generic, all-encompassing thing to study uh, should I come across any, a good idea or, or an opportunity. Uh, so that was my motivation for studying business. Uh, I was, as you said before, not uh, not by a long shot. I was not the best student in school. But, it was but at the time you were studying business, marketing was, was yeah. also super important and taught in business schools as it, well. It was, it was, so it absolutely. definitely right time. It was, it Everything was. came and, and, together. And everything kind of came happen. together. You know, Laura was, uh, she was graduating. I was graduating from school as well. Uh, that was, you know, I, I graduated from, uh, from university in 2009. And in 2010, uh, we, you know, we were playing around with this idea of making rum, and uh, and eventually, um, we just decided to to dive in and, and go for it, uh, and and kind of like the one event that convinced us that we had something great going for us, and that perhaps we should make it into a brand was um, Laura was um, going out with a Venezuelan who is now her husband, Pablo Galante. Uh, and um, Pablo had this uh, very, you know, nice, uh, what is it, a nickname for her. And it was Leticera, you're my enchantress. Oh. Um, so that's how we initially started playing around with that word and trying to find meaning in the word itself. Well, Laura had been living abroad for a while, her studies, her, her first job or two uh, in New York and London. Um, and she had a few friends kind of like all over. So when Pablo and Laura eventually decided to get married in 2010, um, we said, well, let's have all these people over. But what can we give them that is super special, you know? Um, and we said, well, we've got this rum here and nobody has ever tried it. It's kind of like a family reserve. Let's just put together a cheesy uh limited edition only for the wedding etc etc so we put together we bottled 500 bottles of this liquid um it was actually called lychee seda uh, you know it was just a celebration of them five had enough for 500 bottles in your family reserve oh we have plenty more in our family <laughs> reserve um but we but you know it's what you call ron madre it's mother rum uh, uh and if you just borrow the idea of, you know, mother in, in vinegar, uh, it's a similar thing. This is a rum that holds your family DNA. It's got exactly the right taste profile and you use it very sparingly to blend with other rums so that okay. eventually grow up to be like the mother somehow. Right. And it's a beautiful idea. But that was our family reserve and, you know, we had it for blending purposes to kind of like keep the, the unity of our blends. But we never bottled it. But obviously, special occasion, we bottled it. Uh, and uh, what happened next was everybody was absolutely obsessed with the name, with the story, with this and that. We said, hey, well, the liquid is there. Market research. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I, I mean, yes. Uh, market you could have planned it better. <laughs> in, in fact, a 500-person focus yeah, group, exactly. which is always a, a telling thing. Um so we had the liquid, we had the market opportunity, all of a sudden people were looking for rum and you had Diageo putting together a beautiful brand, Sakapa, uh, and kind of like a, sh a shining light on this um, 
new segments in the category, which was the premium opportunity. And we had a third thing going on, which was an interest in Colombia. Colombia was no longer that super turbulent nation. It was no longer failed states. In fact, it was a, you know the third largest economy in Latin America, and it was growing at uh, double digits, and it was it was doing very very well for itself. And, and um, it was receiving more foreign direct investment than ever before, more tourists than ever before. And it was, in a way, a Colombian renaissance. And we said, wow, we need to claim this origin with a quality product for this premium rum opportunity. And um, we had all the confidence we needed from that initial experiment of my sister's wedding and decided to put together a beautiful brand around uh, that name, Lechicera, the Enchantress. And the bottle is so beautiful as well. Thank you. Um, how did that come about? Well, we, I mean, we had an idea of what we wanted to communicate with the with the bottle. We, we, we had an idea of what we wanted to celebrate with the actual name Lechicera, the Enchantress. You know, Colombia is the most biodiverse country per square kilometer in the world. It is the most fertile nation on earth. It is giving, it is lush, it's got this beautiful mountainous geography, very voluptuous um, in nature. Um, and Colombia as an entity, at least for us, Colombia has, has always had this feminine allure. It's always been a feminine energy. And, and once you meet uh, Colombian uh, women as well, you realize where this femininity comes from. So Lechicera, as the enchantress... Also, it is, you know, the home of magical realism as a mm -hmm. literary genre. It just became uh, a metaphor for Colombia and Colombian magic. And that, you know, Colombia is a place where truth is somewhat, sometimes wilder than fiction. And, uh, and we wanted to play with that and the whole biodiversity piece and everything they just mentioned. Uh, but we knew that we needed professionals to somehow help us uh, um, reflect those ideas in a very marketable brand. Uh, so we interviewed a few very good Colombian branding agencies and a few agencies in London as well. Um, and we noticed that, you know, Colombian agencies are really, really good, but they couldn't step aside from their Colombianness to, to gain that perspective of how you would want to promote Colombia internationally. Whereas here in London, uh, we felt that It, we could we could kind of like step outside ourselves and look into our Colombianness from a different perspective, and we eventually just wanted something that was Colombian. It was wild. It was lush. It was beautiful. It had that uh, you know edge that you would expect from a country like Colombia, but it was still elegant and refined. We wanted something from the new world looked looked at from a from an old world optic, uh, if you will. Uh, so we decided in the 2011 to, you know, start a branding process with professionals here in London. Um, that went on for a while, but it eventually took us to this concept of this rum, this potion from this magical, beautiful country that is Colombia. Um, it is a vision of a different Caribbean and rum is, you know, rum is Caribbean and it, it, it always has been. But when you mention The Caribbean, or think of the Caribbean, there is this generic imagery that one goes to, which is, you know, uh, small islands, 
uh, light green vegetation, tall palm trees, mm-hmm. hammocks, uh, cocktails with umbrellas, uh, reggae music, and the whole thing. And, and that is the Caribbean, by the way, and it's a beautiful side of the Caribbean. And Colombia even participates in that version of the Caribbean somehow. But the Colombian Caribbean is, is a lot more. Colombian Caribbean is uh, a Caribbean of contrast. We've got the northern peninsula of La Guajira, which is uh, it's covered in deserts and sand dunes like you would get in the Namibian deserts. You get uh, the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta, which is the snow-peaked mountain I told you about, where you can stand on a glacier 6,000 feet above sea level and look at the Caribbean and the horizon. Um, which is a crazy thought. Um, and between the Caribbean and those snow peaks, you've got the most lush and biodiverse mounts that you can get. Uh, the actual, the three Indian tribes that inhabit uh, um, the Sierra Nevada, they are the remnants of the Tairona culture, which was one of the big, big uh, civilizations in the region at the time. They actually consider it to be the heart of the world, and 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 you've got this bit and this idea in Lechicera as well. You go just a, a bit to the west from there, and you're in Barranquilla, which is the largest you know industrial city on the Caribbean, which is where we make a rum, and it's uh, uh, home to the second largest carnival in the world after Rio. And uh, uh, if you go west just a bit more, you're in Cartagena, which is this beautiful walled colonial town with just so much going for it but it's so different to everything else so the Colombian Caribbean is that version that we go to when we think of the Caribbean but it's so much more as well so we eventually created a rum that we felt had a bit of everything it had this botanical illustration of the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta and all that biodiversity it had this uh, more refined aesthetic that is kind of like elusive to the golden age of the Colombian Caribbean of these um, white dinner jackets and uh, black and white movies, Casablanca, that whole thing uh, around Republican architecture, and and um, which was an era in the Caribbean. Um, and you've got this blue seal that we just chose as a very distinctive thing. One for practical reasons, we wanted a bottle that got noticed from any corner of the room, um, whether it's a bar, whether it's a store, whether it's a house of somebody you admire. We wanted something noticeable. Uh, but we we also wanted something that was a bit playful. You, you know, it is kind of like a, a wax seal. It's a it's a lacquer, but uh, but it's it's cobalt blue and it's bright and it's lively and it also takes you back to Colombian icons like just the the sky, the sea, you know, the, the abundant water um, and the rest of it and. We talk about a celebration of Colombian femininity and diversity. And then uh, the last thing I would say about the bottle is the logo. Um, what you have here is a praying mantis completing this H for Echicera, uh, standing on uh, these palm, palm uh, leaves from the Sierra Nevada between two orchids, which are, by the way, the Colombian national, national flower, which is also a very feminine flower. Um, and the beautiful thing about the praying mantis is you find it all over Colombia. Um, it's a beautiful creature. It's very stylized, very feminine, uh, very nimble. And yet it's got this dash of danger, this element of danger in that uh, the female uh, devours the male whilst mating, which is also, you know, it's it's humorous. Um, and it's, uh, it's just a way of... Uh, of again just pointing to what makes Colombians Colombians. Um, 
And that's that's the brand. That's what we All eventually came up with. All of this in one sip. All of this in one sip. Exactly. In one drink. Yeah. Should we go try some now? Let's do it. There's so much more to this story that we didn't touch on. So I have plans to revisit La Chisera in another podcast when I meet their brand ambassador, Stephanie Jordan, in May. Thanks so much to Miguel for taking the time to meet with me while he was on a short hop through Europe from Barranquilla. Now it's time for our Cocktail of the Week. Our Cocktail of the Week, the Banana Old Fashioned, or Banana Republic, is a yummy mix of rum and one of Colombia's main exports, the banana. Put all of the following ingredients in a mixing glass. 60 ml of La Chisera, 20 ml of banana liqueur, 3 drops of Angostura bitters, and if possible, add 5 drops of chocolate bitters. Stir all the ingredients with ice, then strain into an ice-filled old-fashioned glass. Preferably, use a single block or an ice sphere. Garnish with a banana chip. You'll find this recipe and all the cocktails of the week on alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. Last week, I was in Edinburgh for Tales on Tour, where the famous cocktail conference Tales of the Cocktail which originated in New Orleans, took its show on the road. Boy, do I have some tales to tell. Come back next week to hear who was there and what exactly happened up north. Until next time, bottoms up. Thanks for listening to the Lush Life Podcast, the sister of A Lush Life Manual. For more information and links to everything you heard, plus a bit more, please visit alushlifemanual.com. Always remember the wise words of Oscar Wilde. All things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. Okay, I said that last part. Theme music is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. Lush Life is produced by Evo Terra. And I'm your hostess, Susan Schwartz. I'll see you at the bar.